You can now take KRBN Internet News Talk Radio with you on your mobile phone as we are making it easier to listen to the great hosts here on KRBN, including our very own West Lane County Commissioner, Jay Bozovich. It's free and available on Google Play. Just look for player.fm. That's player.fm and search for KRBN. Live from Lane County, Oregon, it's the Bose No Show with your host, West Lane County Commissioner Jay Bosevich. And now, here's Jay. Good afternoon, and it's a uh typical fall day in the Pacific Northwest here. Not quite what we had all summer long, and we're pretty happy about it. It's uh, just great. We're finally getting a little bit of rainfall here in the Pacific Northwest, so maybe we might get past fire season. Still not enough to be out of the woods, Uh Um, (laughs) but we're doing a lot better. Uh, Actually lifted some of the restrictions in Lane County Parks on campfires, et cetera. So um, it's it's good news here that we actually got some moisture in the Pacific Northwest last 24 to 48 hours. And uh, it's something that we're, we're thankful for. So you're listening to the Bose Nose Show, and I'm your host, Lane County Commissioner Jay Bozovich, and we are coming to you live from beautiful downtown Elmira and at any time, you can control the topic of this show by calling us at 646-721-9887. And just press 1, because that lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know that you want to get in on the conversation again. That's 646-721-9887. And just press 1. And you can control the topic on the Bose Nose Show. Otherwise, you're going to have to listen to what I want to talk about. And I want to start off just mentioning today is September 12th, and yesterday, of course, was September 11th, and the anniversary of the attack on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and uh, the downing of Flight 93 in Pennsylvania, a pretty somber day. But I kind of like to remember September 12th more in some ways, And and I like remembering it because I like the culture that, you know, kind of dawned on the country on September 12, 2001. And for a short while held on to us for, you know, a month or two before we started kind of getting back to the normal uh, of uh, America. But it was really a culture of pulling together, of supporting each other and, and looking past our differences and trying to find common ground. And that, that, um, that September 12th culture, you know, I'd much rather try and make a national holiday out of September 12th than I would 9-11. You know, 9-11, you know, we don't want to forget about it, but remembering that's remembering the hate that drove that attack. And, 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 you know, what, happened, the people that were lost, all the sorrow, whereas if we celebrated September 12th, it'd be a celebration of how we pulled together as a country and how we unified and and just the the whole feeling in the country as we were, you know, recovering from that shock and pulling together as, as one for a short while there after September 11th. So, if we're up to me, we'd make a national holiday out of September 12th and, uh, and, and the desire to bring back that, that unity that we saw on September 12th, 2001. Can you imagine that just for a moment, that, that that would be the kind of holiday we celebrate? Rather than commemorating, you know, some horrific act, uh, commemorating unity and and working together and pitching in, you know, no matter what, you know, the people that helped clear the rubble uh, in New York City, not all of them were firemen. 
you know, just happen to be, you know, bystanders, you know, we're helping people. So it just really uh, want to think about September 12th sometimes and, and that September 12th culture of 2001 and how we can move that forward in our country. But outside of it being September 12th, it was also kind of a busy week for me uh, as a county commissioner. I was up in Salem uh, all day on Monday for our association, Oregon County uh, legislative meetings. Uh, so have lots to talk about there. I was even in Albany last Friday for um, the uh, District 5 meetings, which District 5 of um, Oregon for the Oregon Association of Counties is uh, Lynn Benton and Lane counties. Uh, so you can imagine that's kind of a, a real mixture of county commissioners there, but uh, it was a good meeting last Friday, um, good meetings on Monday, and then on Tuesday was a board day and we covered all sorts of things. But I want to get back um, to the AOC meeting a little bit on Monday because I, I was able to attend the um, natural resources um, committee meeting, which basically, and public lands uh, committee meeting, and there was a report from ODF on this this year's fire season. Normally, it would have been a close-up report uh, that we get about this time of year, but it, the fire season's still ongoing as of on Monday. It hadn't really rained yet, and um, it still is going. There's still fires burning strong here in Oregon. There hasn't been enough rain yet to, to say fire season is over. Um, but listening to, you know, the report from ODF, it's been a really tough fire season for a number of acres burned. Um, and in particularly, uh, over 700,000 acres burned and you know, last year was nearly record setting and that was over 600,000 acres burned. Um, but about 350,000 of those acres fields, uh, in, uh, North central uh, Oregon, basically, in a, in a couple of fires, a substation fire and, and a more recent fire. Um, so it, it's amazing how fast those travel. And, you know, one of the things that they talked about was um, the, the way that they stopped the substation fire was mostly due to farmers actually getting out there with their own equipment and plowing fire lines um, at their own behest, really. Um, helping stop that fire and it's really uh, and at their own risk because there was actually a farmer that died while trying to do that uh, so uh, you know sort of right in that same sort of mode of 912 of everybody pitching in um, the farmers were definitely um, taking matters into their own hands and trying to get that fire stopped um, and, and Talking with some of the commissioners from that area, they said basically if the farmers hadn't done what they did, they never would have stopped that fire at the point they did, even though that particular fire burned you know, burned um, about 150,000 acres. So it, it's been a tough year, and it reminds me of a little bit is that you know a lot of these fires are occurring in areas where particularly not the, the wheat fires and the big, uh, you know, brush fire, grass fire type stuff that happens out in eastern Oregon, but the forest fires here on the western side um, that have been really bad this year, and there have been quite a few, um, and some where we've lost houses and everything down in, in Josephine County and Jackson County, um, where we, you know, had fires that, you know, required evacuations. Uh, a lot of those fires are happening in forests that haven't been well managed. Um, you know, federal lands uh, that are, you know, allowing a lot of fuel load to build up. Um, they weren't, I w wouldn't say they're, they're old growth, um, never harvested land. They, a lot of them are uh, lands that uh, are second growth and have not been managed. And uh, it's really a, a tough situation. And one of the things that's been a result of that is there's been really heavy smoke involved with that. And, that. and that was one of the things that ODF is now kind of including in their end of season fire reporting. It's not just the statistics on how many acres were burned, how many 
fires were started, how many were put out at less than 10 acres, which, by the way, they put out in the ODF protected lands. And these don't include U.S. Forest Service. This is for um, the Oregon, California Railroad lands that are managed by BLM, state forest and private forest that ODF is contracted to protect, the Oregon Department of Forestry. They put out 94% of the fires at 10 acres or less. Can't quite say the same thing about the U.S. Forest Service and the lands they protect. So um, they do an amazing job. But one of the things they did do was uh, they provided some maps about smoke intrusion and where it was bad and, and number of days and, and impacts. And it was really um, kind of sobering how bad the impacts were to some areas. And as we think about smoke intrusion and, and forest management, you know, one of the ways to not have wildfire smoke intrusion in the summertime is to not have wildfire in the first place. So you've got to start thinking about getting ahead of these things. And one of the ways of getting ahead of them is to um, manage the fuel loads. And one of the, the tools for managing fuel loads is controlled burns, which usually don't happen during fire season. They usually happen kind of in the shoulders of fire season, right about this time of year as it start, just starts raining and uh, maybe um, in the springtime as it's stopping raining, uh, they might do controlled burn work to uh, control understory and ladder fuels in the forest. And uh, it's a, a real um, skill and, and to, to be able to do controlled burns without them getting away from you, it takes takes experience to do it. But uh, one of the things is that's all done under permit. You, you don't just go out and do a controlled burn as a forest management company or the BLM or whatever. Um, you, you get permits to do that. And uh, there's something in the state called a smoke management plan, which is uh, put together by the Oregon Department of Forestry and the Department of Environmental Quality that runs for five years at a time and it's getting ready to be renewed. And uh, September 14th is the last day to comment on the smoke management plan, the proposed rules that are um, going before the, um, the various agencies to get approval. And Lane County uh, submitted some comments. Uh, we approved a letter to be uh, submitted on Tuesday, yesterday. Uh, yesterday. Uh, trying to encourage them to not be overly restrictive with the rules on that and allow as much use of this tool to control fuels because it's better to have the smoke from these controlled burns when they usually, one of the ways they do it is, you know, they don't let you burn if, if there's a, you know, a cold weather inversion uh, predicted and there won't be good ventilation of smoke. They mostly happen on days when there is good ventilation uh, and uh, trying to get as much of this work done has long-term benefit in the forest. It's a much more natural way of controlling fuels and, and uh, controlling invasive species that aren't fire tolerant. And it really uh, could help us prevent wildfire smoke which we don't have control over and actually can have much higher impact. So it's one of those things where um, it, you almost have to uh, get an agency that is all about there shouldn't be any smoke in the air at all, DEQ, to agree to allowing smoke to be in the air to prevent more smoke from being in the air. And, and it's going to be a, an interesting concept to see if we can push through to, to try and make sure those rules don't get tightened up so much that there is no ability to use um, fire on the landscape to control uncontrolled fire on the landscape and in, in when we don't want it and in ways that it actually will be much uh, much heavier of a contributor. Uh, so it's re a real concern because you know we have the 2000 20 uh, Olympic trials coming here to Eugene in the summertime. And then ultimately we're going to have the 2021 world track and field games here. And they're going to be here in August. 
And guess when we've had our smoke intrusions? You know, they happen sometimes in August. And we really don't want to have that. So the time to be doing this controlled burn work is between now and 2021 to try and manage the fuel loads and maybe prevent large wildfires and make it easier to stop them at that less than 10 acres uh, and, and prevent the smoke problems we've had. I mean, we didn't have it quite as bad here as we had the year before, but in areas like Medford and um, Ashland, they had really bad smoke to the point where it had quite an impact on the Oregon Shakespeare Festival, uh, their outdoor venues there. It had quite an impact on a lot of the Rogue River um, tourism that goes on in the summertime, which is, you know, the, uh, for some of those communities along the Rogue River, that's when they make their money, when they, you know, it's kind of like their version of Black Friday is the summertime. Uh, the summer tourism season, and if they don't make the money, then they may not make it through the winter. And uh, it was two tough years in a row on in the Rogue River area for smoke. And uh, it, people just choose to go somewhere else and do something else for their vacations when they hear news reports about um, unhealthy air quality levels uh, where they're planning to go on vacation. So uh, really something we should be looking at is how we manage smoke uh, from wildfires by actually producing smoke from controlled burns. So as the state's looking at their, quote, smoke management plan for controlled burning, um, we need to probably look at that in a way that says, after the last couple of seasons of wildfire, maybe we need to kind of make sure we're not being overly restrictive on the use of controlled burns uh, to manage the, the fuel loads uh, and maybe reduce the wildfires and have and, and actually have an overall net reduction in smoke by allowing for this production of smoke through the controlled burning. So it's uh, going to be interesting to see how that moves along. I'll be watching that carefully because I think it's really uh, one of those things we need, really need to push for is there needs to be more um, active management of fuel loads in our forest and active management um, in general uh, of, of our forest as we see them uh, get stressed from uh, various diseases uh, and, and bugs and also get stressed by drought. Um, we need to kind of be more prepared, uh, prepare them to be more resilient to wildfire. And so we can keep wildfire smaller and maybe have less smoke uh, because, you know, generally controlled burn smoke isn't going to have that long-term impact uh, that we get of uh, weeks and weeks in the summertime where it will truly have a detrimental health effect, even to healthy people, uh, that consistent exposure. So that's kind of what's on my mind as far as smoke management goes. And if you have uh, any questions or comments about smoke management, wildfire, fuel management, or just active management of our forest, give me a call here at the Bose Nose Show at 646-721-9887. Just press 1, and that lets me know you want to get in on the show. Again, 646-721-9887. Just press 1. I'm going to kind of turn... The, the conversation a little bit because in, in addition to talking about smoke and just overall the, the 112% increase in, in fire this year uh, that ODF had to be concerned with, one of the things they talked about was um, the whole idea of emergency management, reimbursement from FEMA and all that, and how it's going to take them up to eight months just to go through the accounting to recover uh, reimbursement funds from FEMA um, on some of these these things, and so it kind of led into another conversation we had in the um, public safety meeting at at AOC, which is centered around emergency management and talking about everything from um, the uh, analog radio backup system to the digital emergency broadcast system. You know, one of the things people don't realize is as we've gone to digital everything, 
we've developed an emergency broadcast system now that is all computerized and digital. And uh, that, that system and the internet that, that supports it could go down in some kinds of emergency, and there's not really the old analog systems that predated it are kind of gone. And there isn't really a backup for how a 911 um, emergency operations center, so to speak, would communicate with the radio stations that are charged with, you know, the, like the, the, you know, the higher power radio stations in certain areas of the designated emergency broadcast stations. There isn't really a backup to that digital connection in a lot of areas. So the state's looking at putting in a um, analog system to back that up. So there's uh, work being done on that uh, across the state. And they're also working on um, some grants across the state, which were funded at a pretty anemic level, and they're hoping to get funded at a little bit higher level, or something they call F-Pods, which is basically fuel point of distribution. Uh, and one of the things that they discovered, and particularly on the substation fire, which is kind of why this wraps back into the ODF report, the substation fire was so named because it burned a substation up the first thing just about, and it put power out for most a very large area. And that created a lot of difficulty because almost every gas station, you know, doesn't have a backup generator. And the card lock facilities don't have backup generators. And it requires electricity to pump diesel into the firefighting equipment that needs to get out there and fight the wildfire. And it was quite a logistics nightmare for the fire um, response to figure out where they were getting fuel from and to get fuel into um, for all this equipment that needs to be continued at, at running, moving crews in and out, um, you know, to power the bulldozers, everything like that. You know, when you have a widespread power outage and you can't just go and buy fuel uh, at the local card lot. Um, so one of the things that they've got is a grant um, system to, to install at least the um, plug-in for generator and, and the uh, throwover switch for the generator uh, at card lock facilities so they can pull up with a generator, power the card lock facility up, and then pump, you know, fuel into the, you know, whatever emergency response vehicles for whatever emergency is going on. And as you think about the, the Cascadia subduction zone and some other various uh, emergencies, like we had a big ice storm here uh, recently uh, in, in our area, the Northwest, uh, uh, that put power out. Getting fuel can be one of the biggest issues uh, in some of those emergencies because almost every major emergency has power outages connected to it. Uh, and in particular, the, the Cascadia subduction zone, they're predicting we may be without power for months in some areas of, of Oregon. And on the coast, it may be up to a year or more. So um, having the ability to pump gasoline and how to get gasoline and diesel around uh, in those affected areas is pretty important. And uh, they really uh, need to pump a little bit more money and effort into that idea of, of fuel distribution and emergency. But, uh, you know, we're all thinking a little bit more about emergencies, partly because of the wildfires this summer, but also because there's this looming thing called Florence off the coast. And I'm not, not talking about Florence and Lane County. I'm talking about Hurricane Florence off the Carolinas. And as we're watching people being evacuated, all the preparations and warnings and, you know, talking about what people need and what they should do there, um, it's a good opportunity for us to think about the emergencies that can hit this area. You know, we don't have tropical storms necessarily here. We do get pineapple expresses sometimes that cause major flooding events, like we had you know, back in 1996 uh, or you know, other years. And we can get, you know, whether close to hurricanes or even small almost tornadoes, like we had a tornado that hit our Lane Community College campus and flipped some cars over. 
Um, we had that micro uh, burst storm that came through back in 2003, I believe it was, February 2003, that took out power for much of the area with 70 mile an hour winds. Um, we, you know, we have more widespread wind storms like the Columbus Day storm back in the 60s. Uh, so there's, there's wind events, there's flooding events we can have here. You know, those are pretty common and repeat themselves. We have ice storms and, you know, even heavy snowfall. Not too long ago here in the Benita area, we had a really heavy wet snowfall that broke a lot of uh, limbs off of fir trees. And when those limbs came down, they took out power lines. And I think we were without power for almost three days here at my house. And I was one of the lucky ones to get power back relatively quickly. Um, so thinking about, you know, those emergencies and what we have here and personal planning for that and being able to take care of yourself until it's time for the, the government to get in there. In that mode, um, yesterday in the Board of Commissioners meeting, we did something uh, relative to emergency management that I think will be a good thing for the county. Our emergency management um, department, so to speak, which is a department of one person, uh, was actually housed in the sheriff's office for quite a long time in Lane County. And we uh, elevated that office out of the sheriff's department and into county administration. So it, it is county administrations over all of the county, including the sheriff's department, public works, public health, um, you name it, everybody reports up through the county administration uh, department. So it elevates that, that position slash department, we're hoping to get more than one person in it um, now that it's moved up into county administration, uh, to be more countywide significant and, and having more control over all departments. And I think that'll be a good thing for Lane County in planning for these emergencies. Uh, and really, as we look at, you know, how are we going to handle the, the unforeseen uh, emergencies, the predicted emergencies, uh, as we look at everything from wildfire to floods to the Cascadia subduction zone to civil unrest, uh, we, we, we have to think about all those things to say, uh, uh, you know, some kind of contagious disease outbreak uh, that might be rampant in this area. Having that located in county administration gives us access to uh, more resources and actually touches all the departments that will respond to all those very um, possible emergencies. So uh, I think it was an important thing for us to do. Um, one of the things that's interesting is anytime we transfer a function out of the sheriff's department, we actually have to have um, positive consent of the sheriff because he's an elected official and the way um, statutes work, uh, he has to um, concede to that. We kind of did that for a while. Uh, parole probation was actually under the sheriff and we moved it back out from under the sheriff. Yet they actually signed the board order um, consenting to that um, so that you know, there was affirmative consent to take power away from him, um, so to speak. So it's, it's an interesting thing about elected sheriffs. Um, kind of goes back to old English law, which we won't get into the constitutional sheriff movement. It's a, a whole nother long conversation for the Bozo show. But I think, uh, you know, thinking about smoke, thinking about fire, thinking about Hurricane Florence really brings us back around to just thinking about emergency preparedness. In fact, I was at the Fernridge Chamber of Commerce quarterly luncheon today, and guess what their topic was? business continuation in an, emer in an emergency or disaster, at continuity. How, how do you keep your business going? How do you prepare for an emergency? How do you recover from it from a disaster? Because they found that, you know, businesses have a huge failure rate. If they had to close during an emergency, certain amount that will never open their doors again if they receive damage during an emergency. And there's a huge amount that even if they do open, fail in the first year. 
So it's really, you know, when you have a widespread emergency, there's a huge economic impact to it. And how can we be more resilient economically if we do have that emergency and make sure our businesses survive? You know, talking about that a little bit, it's an interesting thing to think about. You know, you kind of got to, if you own a business or you're managing a business or involved in it, kind of got to ask um, yourself, you know, what would you do if your place of business wasn't available? You know, if the physical place of business for some reason, you know, was damaged or unsafe to re-enter um, or, or you just couldn't get to it, could you still operate your business? If your employees couldn't get to your business, your people weren't available, can you still operate? Or can they operate, can they work remotely? You know, you know, how would you handle that? So it's, you know, just some of those things. And if your stuff wasn't available. Yeah, so there's, you know, like if it was damaged um, in some way. So it's just, you know, thinking through some of those things and some of the ways to be more resilient about that is, you know, kind of one, thinking it through, understanding, you know, what your threats are and uh, for your area, what the most common threats are, what, what some of the less common ones are, are. But just how do you prepare for that? And, you know, one of the things they they talked about was just, um, you know, maybe talking with your your banking um, folks up front about, you know, if you do get an emergency and I need cash to continue my payroll because I haven't been able to bill and collect or, or the mail, you know, mail hasn't come for, for several days, so I don't have any new checks and deposits. You know, is there a way, I, you know, we can prearrange a line of credit that would start, you know, after an emergency at a reduced interest rate or something like that. Just having some of those conversations, maybe with your bank, um, thinking about off-site storage of data. You know, is, is your your uh, accounting information being um, somehow or another um, backed up and stored off-site? and off-site far enough that it's not going to get impacted by whatever disaster hit your community. So, and maybe it needs to be backed up in more than one place. So do you have something like Carbonite or one of those other services that automatically backs your computers up and keeps the files in, in some cloud or wherever else uh, well away from your, your business location where if you're building and all your computers were damaged, say in a wildfire event and, and burnt to the ground, and you were trying to restart your business uh, a month later, could you bring back all of your customer files and your, your uh, accounts payable, accounts receivable, more importantly, probably, you know, who owed you money before the disaster hit so you can maybe collect on some of that so you can get your business going again. You know, where are all those records you know, for you? Are you are you maintaining those? And if you're uh, still back in the paper age, are you keeping your critical paper records in a in a safe that's that's fireproof and, and just kind of preparing those sort of things, you know, for your business to survive? Are your employees prepared personally? You know, because one of the things is are your employees going to come to work after a disaster? Well, if your employees, you know, didn't put aside two weeks of food and water, don't have an idea of how they're going to live, um, you know, and where they're going to meet, you know, if their family's scattered when the, when the disaster hits, where they're going to come back to, they're going to be dealing with their personal stuff. They're not going to be worried about coming in and helping you reopen your business. So talking to your employees about personal preparation maybe even helping them, giving incentives for them to do things to make themselves personally prepared for disaster so that when it does strike, they can be assured that their family is okay, has food, has water, has some place, you know, some way of heating their, you know, and, and a place to sleep, you know, you know, if it's camping gear or whatever, try and, you know, just assure that the employee's family is going to be okay so that you actually have employees that might come in and help you make the business okay. So all those things to think through um, to try and be more resilient um, post-disaster is about, think, you know, just thinking some of that stuff through 
and just helping your employees be resilient. So uh, it's an important conversation to have as it is National Disaster Preparedness Month. So uh, we want folks to uh, really think about, are you prepared? Is your work prepared? Because, you know, think about it. You might survive the Cascadia subduction zone earthquake and tsunami, and you might have put aside your two weeks of food and have all your, you know, your emergency gear and your family's all set. But if your place of employment closes the day of that, that earthquake and never reopens, um, that may be a tough thing for you and your family. <laughs> so you might want to be asking maybe your employer a little bit about, are we prepared? Are we resilient? Are we, are we ready for an emergency? Are, are, are we going to be here? You know, I, you know, I realize you might have to close for a week or two or something like that because of you know, a lack of power or whatever else, but are we going to be able, are we going to survive? Am I going to have a job after a major emergency, a natural disaster, or even a human-caused disaster? Um, think about that a little bit. You know, so there is some responsibility on the employee's part, maybe to push their employer. So anyone listening to Bo's Nose Show, have those conversations about emergency preparedness. They're not fun conversations because you got to think about some pretty horrible stuff happening out in the world. But if you think about it, prepare a little bit, you can be, you know, one of the people helping people on September 12th, not one of the people being helped on September 12th. So that's kind of bringing it back around here on the Bose Nose Show. If there's something else you want to talk about instead of emergency preparedness or smoke or whatever else, give us a call at 646-721-9887. Just Press 1, and that lets me know you want to get in on the conversation. Again, at 646-721-9887, just press 1. So a couple things I want to get into outside of smoke and emergency preparedness. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit, just mention the fact that we had our first confirmed fatal cougar attack in the state of Oregon, up near Mount Hood. And cougars have been in the news a lot, but... I also, you know, hear from constituents that not too long ago, we had some llama deaths here near um, the Bonita area uh, you know, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're seeing a lot more uh, in close to neighborhoods. Um, uh, cougar sightings. Uh, there was a cougar in Springfield not too long ago <clears throat> that ended up getting shot. The population of cougars is just, uh, exploding in the state and maybe it's time to rethink the whole idea of uh, banning the use of dogs in hunting cougars. Uh, it, it may be time for us to get back to the effective control population control of cougars. Uh, we do, you know, I do understand it's, you know, there's a need to have natural predators out there, but we are really got to the point where they are pushing themselves uh, into uh, non-natural uh, habitat because they, they, they need a huge amount of range to feed themselves. Uh, our game population suffering because it's a uh, deer and elk population. So the hunters are getting less tags issued. And of course the tags are getting more expensive because less tags are being issued. There's not enough money to run the state um, Department of Fish and Wildlife. So they're raising the fees which means sometimes the tags are going unsold because the fees are getting so dang high. So it's this vicious cycle as we don't control the apex predator for, those, for that, that game. And in fact, the point where that in competition amongst those predators is pushing them into areas and looking for prey that's uh, uh, you know, livestock and, and domestic animals and in fact, in this case, a human. Uh, so we, we might want to rethink some of our policies around control of apex predators like cougars. Um, think about an effective way of controlling that population so it isn't over-competing with itself and, and being forced into populated areas or forced into predation on livestock and humans. So... <clears throat> 
just a little side note here on the Bose Nose Show. And I want to get into our What Were They Thinking segment on the Bose Nose Show. And today I want to give the What Were They Thinking Award again to Governor Kate Brown. She just seems to be getting these awards, but oh my gosh, how can you not recognize that appointing somebody to be the chairman of the PERS board, which is the Public Employee Retirement System Board, that has absolutely no pension experience. Now, mind you, that's retirement system. That is a pension. You're appointing somebody to be the chief of that system that has no pension experience. Think about that for a minute. Second to that is the fact that that particular program is bankrupting the state and local governments. So you're going to take one of the the highest risk programs for the state of Oregon and the greatest liability, $50 billion in unfunded actuarial liability, and appoint somebody to run that system that has no experience in running pensions. What were you thinking, Kate Brown? I mean, I just, I just don't understand it. Yeah, and it, as you think about, you know, governors and the chief executive for the state, and you think about what makes a good, strong executive, and it's usually about who they bring on to their management team. And so here's Kate Brown bringing on somebody to manage one of the biggest high-risk programs of our state that's draining money out of our classrooms, that has no experience in the primary function of the program she's going to run. What were you thinking, Kate Brown? Ah, so, oh well. I know Robin always, you know, she'll always give a what were they thinking award to the people that designed the roads here in Eugene and Springfield. Because <laughs> I know she's really enjoyed driving through Glenwood the last couple of times she's been out. Yeah, I'm still, I'm still waiting for uh, that mess to start happening. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Uh, it'll be interesting, you know, you made off the air before we got on air, she was making the observation of, I wonder how that's going to work out later this winter when it's getting dark at five o'clock and raining hard and, and people are trying to navigate that, you know, that are unfamiliar from out of town, get into that section of circles, loops, and I don't know what you call some of it. Um, <laughs> but that, that is Franklin Boulevard um, right there through Glenwood. Um, It'll be interesting, or even trying to get down, say, 6th Street as they head west out of downtown Eugene, and the, the lane there and suddenly ends or is becomes it, a turn lane. Is this one of those things where you just say no to drugs? Yeah. <laughs> yep, it'll be interesting to watch. So, well, that gets us past the what were we thinking part of the program, talked a little bit about cougars. You know, if there's something you want to give a what were they thinking award to, you can give us a call at 646-721-9887 and press one. Let Robin know you want to get on the show here. Again, 646-721-9887. Just press one. So another thing I got to do this week is I spent about an hour and a half on the phone today on a uh, committee for the Association of Oregon Counties working on a set of principles we'd like to have um, that we can all agree all 36 counties and mind you that that's counties from Multnomah County that surrounds Portland and Benton County um, that are that are pretty far left-leaning to Wheeler County and Harney County out in eastern Oregon which are pretty far on the right side of the spectrum um, trying to get an agreement on principles we want to have uh, involved if there is a cap and trade bill, which we're pretty sure there is going to be one because we heard from uh, folks that are working with the legislature, you know, basically uh, the Senate president and the House speaker appointed themselves as co-chairs of the committee that's writing the bill, which when you have this 
the president and the uh, speaker as the co-chairs writing the bill, you're pretty sure that that bill's probably got traction and is going to move towards an approval eventually in the legislature. So it's kind of like, you know, we can see the freight train coming down the tracks and the lights getting bigger and brighter. And we're just trying to figure out uh, what colors we want the train to be painted at this point. Uh, but uh, trying to come up with some principles we can all agree on. And this, it's surprising that, you know, whether you're from the left or the right side of the aisle, if you're a local government official, there's some things that are really important to you, uh, you know, when they come up with something at a higher government level, like the state or federal government. And one of the things that's really important to us is local control. So we try and, you know, think about some of these principles. Um, one of the things we want to make sure is that whatever they do does not really take away our ability to have local control over some of these programs. So that's really uh, an important, you know, thing that we can all agree on. The second thing we can all agree on, even if you're right side of the aisle or left side of the aisle, we don't like unfunded mandates. <laughs> you know, as elected officials running our, our local governments, if the state or federal government passes some requirement that's going to cost us money, we want them to provide the money along with it. So, you know, there are kind of some things that we can get Harney County and Multnomah County to agree on, and Wheeler County and Benton County to agree on. And if we can kind of stay away from uh, you know, is there global warming or climate change happening or not? You know, is this a, a gonna bill going to actually do anything or not? We're not going to argue about that. But knowing that there's going to be a bill, can we make sure it doesn't take away local control, that it doesn't have an unfunded mandate built into it? You know, and some of those things and those principles that we can agree on. And uh, we actually did come to consensus on several items, uh, one of which was to ask the legislature to build in or to do in advance um, some kind of economic impact analysis on how whatever is being proposed is going to affect local government. And if there is a cost to local governments, providing offset funding for that cost, i.e. no unfunded mandate. Um, you know, another principle was around um, not changing um, contract or dictating contracting requirements for money that does come to local governments uh, out of this program uh, to make it more stringent. Uh, to leave that, you know, if we if we locally want to place you know more stringent requirements on how we do the contracting. Let us decide to do that locally. Don't mandate it from the state level. Yeah, so those, those sort of principles, you know, what we're building towards and trying to agree on when it comes to this whole cap and trade or cap and invest, whatever they're going to call it, um, carbon taxing scheme, president and the speaker are very interested in having moved forward. So it, it was an interesting conversation. The one thing we also all could agree on was no emergency clause on the bill and that's something that you know i haven't i've talked about maybe once or twice maybe on the bose nose show but it seems like every bill now that comes out of the legislature is has an emergency clause tacked onto it and what that does is it, it prevents the ability for citizens to uh, refer it to the citizen you know, to refer it out for a vote uh, because it's been declared an emergency and effective immediately. So there is no waiting period for the bill to become effective in which you could go out and collect signatures to have it placed on the ballot. Um, and they're putting that emergency clause on every bill now, and it's only because there was one bill that the majority party wanted to have implemented they failed to put an emergency clause on a few years ago and it was referred to the voters and soundly defeated yeah which was the um driver cards for folks that couldn't prove they were legal citizens um and that that measure 88 that was the referral of that was you know supported by a majority of 
Oregonians and that effectively killed the idea of driver cards for non-citizens that could prove they were legally in this country. Um, so it was that um, rebuke of the legislature, you know, and this is kind of almost a what were they thinking moment, instead of looking at that and going, oh, maybe we should be more careful about not passing something the voters don't want. Instead, what they said was, oh, we're going to circumvent the voters' ability to um, actually have a say and, 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 and exercise their democratic rights that are outlined in the Oregon Constitution and, and the initiative and referral process. And we're going to cut that off by putting an emergency clause on every bill we pass, even if it's not an emergency. And, and basically, this fake emergency uh, stuff. And with the cap and trade, seeing they, they've been working on it for years, they started to do it in the short session last year and chose not to move it forward. I can't see how they can justify it as an emergency. And, I, and the association, at least the representatives that were on the phone today, agreed with me, no emergency clause on the cap and trade bill. You know, so if it does come out and, and, is, and is something that the citizens wish to have voted on by the people, they should be able to collect signatures and try and get it on the ballot. You know, it's still, it's a tough thing to get those signatures in a short amount of time to refer legislation. Um, so it usually has to be something that's pretty unpopular or, or has a, a, was really um, wrong or something like that, that people will collect those signatures fast enough to get a referral. So I, I don't understand this misuse of the emergency clause that's happened in the legislature in the last couple of years. So, you know, as we look at cap and trade from the, from the Association of Oregon County standpoint, where we have counties that support the, the, the principles of, of this cap and trade scheme, we have counties that oppose it, trying to walk that fine line and not um, break up the association. We agreed on things about, you know, what we'd like to see in the bill. And some of the things we can also agree on is we don't want anything that's going to harm the economy. So there was several provisions we agreed to around um, trying to support uh, incentives and offsets that, that kind of um, make up for the damage that might be done to certain industries by the, the you know, if there's an industry that's impacted by the cap and trade system, the incentives and offsets that are funded by the revenue should go to kind of make that industry whole um, and not go somewhere else in the economy. So, you know, that sort of a principle was something all of us could agree on and, and trying to you know, protect the economy from the impact of whatever they do. Um, so that, that was, you know, an interesting conversation. Uh, it's one of those interesting things as a walk that I am uh, to watch happen is an association that can have such um, diverse political um, backgrounds together to come up with common principles that we could all agree on. Um, and it's kind of like that going back to 9-12 again. There's things really surprisingly, no matter how far you know, left, right, Democrat, Republican, everyone described people, there's really much more we can all come together and agree on if we look for those places to do so. Problem is, is right now we seem to be very much focused on where we can, where we know we won't be able to come together. Instead of focusing on some of the stuff that where we can come together and moving forward on uh, things where we have common agreement. And that's kind of what I spent part of my day today was working towards that, that common agreement on some things which you know unfunded mandates local control not damage you know first do no harm you know we can kind of do that one um and no fake emergencies uh you know so no emergency clauses so that that's kind of what part of what i spent my day on with cap and trade uh here and uh working a little bit on emergency management yesterday it's been an interesting week uh around uh, for me as a commissioner and a busy week. 
because uh, uh, I ended up chairing the district meeting on on Friday. Uh, it's just it's been a crazy busy week. Don't know how it's going for you at all. I know school started, so probably getting pretty busy for everybody out there. Uh, but there's still about three or four minutes left here in the Bo's Nose Show. And if you've managed to get unbusy enough to think of a question you want to ask me or a topic you want to bring up, give me a call, 646-721-9887. Just press 1. That lets Robin, my call screener and producer extraordinaire, know you want to get in on the show. 646-721-9887. Just press 1. So uh, one of the things that was interesting yesterday uh, at the board meeting uh, was uh, Joe Burney, who is um, – He's not the commissioner-elect yet because of kind of the way nonpartisan elections work, but he won the primary election with you know more than 50% of the vote, which means he'll be the only name on the ballot in November. And once that election is certified, then he's officially the commissioner-elect. But you know he's he's kind of like the commissioner designee at this point for Springfield. So we know in January that Joe, you know, without some major upheaval, we'll be swearing Joe Burney in as commissioner in Lane County. And uh, he came to the uh, Board of Commissioners meeting and uh, spoke during public our public comment period to kind of introduce himself and let folks know that he was starting to um, meet with staff and get some tours of the various programs and, and uh, uh, departments in Lane County and kind of um, starting to uh, onboard, so to speak, um, at Lane County. And I really appreciated Joe coming in. Um, very nice tone to his comments. Uh, he was appreciative of staff for starting to uh, share information with him. And I spent a moment to thank uh, Commissioner Lichen, who's the outgoing Springfield Commissioner now, for his courtesy in allowing Joe to do so, because it's not, um, doesn't always happen that way across the state. I, I've come to find uh, through working with the Association of Oregon Counties that in some counties, um, when there's been a change in, in commissioners, um, they basically will withhold information and, uh, you know, there's bad blood and, um, they won't let that new commissioner basically in the door till the old commissioner's out the door and the new one's been sworn in because um, they're not a commissioner until they've held their hand up and taken the oath, uh, so to speak. And and uh, it's nice to see that you know Commissioner Lichen has the best interest of Lane County at heart, uh, even on his way, uh, you know, out you know out and and uh, is gracious enough and and. Um, community-minded enough to know that it's best for Lane County to have um, future Commissioner Bernie come in with good knowledge of how the county works, what the background is in programs, understanding our legal constraints, uh, understanding you know the, the status and condition of some of our facilities and our equipment and and our what what our capabilities and capacities are. Uh, across the organization uh, so he can hit the ground running. So it's nice of Joe to come in. Really nice of Sid to be uh, magnanimous and community-minded. But that's not all we have time for today on the Bose Nose Show. I hope you might have learned something today. I hope you'll think about emergency planning this month as we're in disaster preparedness month and as you're watching the hurricane coverage uh, on, on TV. Um, think about your own emergency preparedness. Think about your place of work's emergency preparedness. Uh, hopefully we can all become a little bit more resilient here in the Pacific Northwest. And uh, thank you for listening to the Bo's Nose Show today. We'll be back next week live from beautiful downtown Elmira. Have a great week. Mm-hmm.